You need to, to identify with your customers. You need to understand their problems because they are telling you, okay, that's a problem. Please fix it for me. I'm a developer by heart and something I don't really like is to talk to salespeople before I can try out the product. No, please, come on. I would like to get my hands into the product. I would like to get started as fast as possible. And if I'm loving your product, I will contact you anyway. But give me something. Hi, I'm Liz Fong Jones. I'm Charity Majors. And I'm Jessica Kerr. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OlliCast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OlliCast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups bring our developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OlliCast. That's at O11YCAST. Because we would like to make chaos engineering accessible for everyone. You don't need to be an expert to know what's going on in our core engine. It's more like get started with chaos engineering and do it in a safe and easy way without to know anything like an expert for, for chaos engineering. But do you have to be an expert in your own systems? Not really, because also we are using, so we are collecting data about your system. We are analyzing your system and we are able to identify so-called weak spots, like spots in your system, some areas in your system, your distributed system, where you should maybe get started with a specific already configured experiment. You would like to do something new, but you're not able to to be an expert and you don't know where should I get started in my system. I'm, I'm not quite able to understand my own system and now I should do chaos engineering without to know anything about it. Mm, it's, it's a big challenge. So we will guide you to specific points in your system and we will present you some already configured experiments where you can get started in a very easy and safe way and yeah, not kill your, your system with the first try because chaos engineering is still risky. And if you're doing it once wrong, you're not allowed to do it anymore. And that's something we are protecting you. This seems a little bit interesting to me because I've always felt like in order to do chaos engineering, like you should be this tall to ride this ride. Like you should have gotten the basics out of the way. Like if you're still in a, in a space where you're getting paged all the time, or there's a lot of stuff that you need to fix, you probably don't need to go injecting even more chaos into your system. Is that wrong? If you're at that point, no, it's not good. But we would like to to enable people to do it in an in earlier stage, not like in production, because you are hunted by production. You are sitting in front of a very complex system in a very unstable system. You're talking about doing chaos engineering not in production? Yes, yes. What's the point of that? Not everybody is on the level like Netflix, like AWS, like very big companies that have done chaos engineering for the last 10 years or eight years, whatever. But what can you actually learn if it's not in production? You can be prepared. You can be proactive to survive production. And you are, you're training your, your organization. You're training your, your, your dev teams, your product teams, your SRE and ops teams. Give me an example. Maybe, maybe that'll help me understand. Your SRE team has identified a very big incident last night. They have done a post-mortem analyze, and now they would like to protect your organization, your team, your customers to run in the same incident again and again and again. So that's maybe a good point where you could describe like a playbook from this incident. You can train your team, you can train your stack not to, to run in this issue again. You, and you can do it in an earlier stage, which is quite close through production. It needs to be as close to production as it can be, but it don't needs to be production. 
Well, see, that's the thing. Like nobody's staging environments actually look like production. So like the, what you can learn from them is fairly limited. Can you give me like a specific example of like the kind of experiment that someone might run for one of these things? Let's imagine we are a developer and we are focused on our application. We understand how our application is working. We know what dependencies I need as an application to survive, to get started and so on. So maybe let's get started from this tiny point and let's drop off one of these dependencies and see how my application is reacting under this small, small radius. And so you can do it with all your applications. You can improve your application at a very small scale. Like a library? Not, not like a library, like a remote dependency, or maybe you are pushing data into Kafka or you are consuming data via REST, whatever. So something which your service needs to, to work. So if I'm the checkout service and I depend on inventory service, maybe inventory service becomes unresponsive? Yeah, exactly. Or maybe it's responding slow or maybe it's uh, responding with some exceptions and maybe you, you have implemented the retry pattern and you would like to verify if the retry pattern is working or not. Or maybe you have implemented a fallback strategy and you would like to see if the fallback strategy is, is triggered like, like designed. Hopefully it works. You, you can check and validate if it's happening like, like expected. I associate this sort of thing with the sort of thing that you, you implement using tests. I, it's, that's how I've always seen it done. It's very close to tests, but it's a little bit more than just testing. It's, nowadays, testing is more like happy pass testing. Okay, everything will work. Okay, yeah, nice. But if you are injecting some, some latency in, in a remote call or you are injecting some exceptions or request which the response is not coming like it's designed. So basically, this is, this is a way to take some of the complexity out of testing and put it into more of a sort of manual testing. Not manual, no. It's no. not exactly production, but you're simulating production. And so you're able to do testing at a, at a broader scale. You can include performance in that. Yes. For example, one customer is doing it like they are using SteadyBit, but for example, Q&A is deployed. Or maybe let's pick up another stage. Let's get started with development stage. Something is pushed into Git, and now the system is deployed. But after the deployment, SteadyBit is checking, okay, is the system able to survive an outage of some specific container, some specific services? Is the system still working? So SteadyBit is triggering a load test. And during the execution of a load test, we are injecting, let's call latency. We are injecting some pods are now dying. and we are doing an, a shutdown node of a specific Kubernetes node. Is the system still able to survive? Is the system still responding? And can the load test been executed? And are the results okay? That's something you, you can do. Can you do this in an automated way after every, every run of you know, your test suite or whatever? Exactly, exactly. You can integrate into CI/CD pipelines. So it's funny because I don't associate this with chaos engineering at all. It's in the, more the heritage of like, well, unit testing and then integration testing and everything. Like to me, chaos engineering means in production and it means in a more, I know manual is kind of a bad word in the industry, but like, like to me, like it's, it's, a, it's a balance between this is a really disruptive thing and we're doing it in production because it's the only way that we can find these learnings. And, you know, we do it during the daytime because people are around and, and they can see if anything goes wrong and that sort of thing. And it, it sounds to me like this is kind of a blurring of those lines. It's the basement. It's just where... Is this the buzzwordification of, of integration testing? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was the starting point for chaos engineering. Of course, production is a, is a place where you 
you need to to train production and you would like to improve production because your customers are in production. That's a very special place to be. Right. This is like integration tests, but the not happy path. So it requires, you have to have integration tests and load tests set up to be automated. Yeah. You need, you need traffic in the system. Yeah. You need some traffic in the system. Otherwise, you, you're not able to learn. Sure. Even if I ran this, I would still be only like 10% confident that it would actually behave the same way in production. Sure. But it was worse before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. The first time you run the chaos experiment, that is inventory service becomes unreachable. You find out that the checkout service definitely retries infinitely until it crashes. So you'll find some things. Yeah, like you said, maybe there's there's a 10% better chance. You can train yourself up and you can get better. But it's like the master boss is production. You should do it later on in production. Of course, yeah, but don't get started because if you have never done it before, you will fail and you will not allow to do it anymore. I imagine that when StudyBit suggests experiments, in a system that people aren't 100% familiar with, because maybe they haven't been on this team for 20 years and the systems evolved during that time, I imagine that teaches people about their own systems. Yes. They can learn something. They can prove themselves. Uh, they are able to skill themselves up. I'm, I'm a developer by heart, and I would like to be better every day. I would like to get up and bring something into production as fast as possible. That's something which is driving me, because I would like to deliver value for my users. If they are not able to, to use my product, if they are not able to see how my product, my application is working because of an outage, that's, that's a bad experience. And I would like to be aware of, of any other kind of outages. This sounds like a good time to introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Benjamin. I'm Benjamin Wilms, one of the founders of SteadyBit. In total, we are three founders. With my colleagues, Dennis and Johannes, we founded SteadyBit 2019. It's a very nice place to be. It's it's a freaking roller coaster. It's my first startup, so uh, everything is new for me. I started with Chaos Engineering six to seven years ago as a consultant in a co company called Codecentric, and uh, from there it uh, evolves into a company called Stadibit. Anything else you would like to know about me? There is this note in the in our show notes here or our agenda that says, "Are we hunted by our own systems?" What does that mean? It's that moment when you are you are called by one of your colleagues. I'm sitting in front of a very complex incident, but I'm not able to get production back up and running again. So hmm, I'm under pressure. I'm kicked by production and we need to fix it right now. But you are in a, in a very stressed environment. You are not able to, to get up production up and running mm. on the long run. It's more like a quick fix. You are, you are just fixing this issue. The next issue is coming up, but I'm still under pressure, under stress. How can I get production up and running? That's, that's behind this sentence. Okay. So observability will help you figure out that what's going on is inventory service is not responding to checkout service. Yeah. And then with a study bit experiment, you could be like, okay, we're going to set this up and test. We're going to duplicate this condition. We're going to see it fail. Then we're going to fix it. Then we're going to know it's fixed. Then we're going to set up experiments for every other dependency. Exactly. And also you can replay every time you, you would like. Oh, and then you could run Honeycomb on your load test or send events from load test to Honeycomb so that you can see, yes, this was the same thing. Then you make the changes and then you run the test again and you look at the traces and you say, aha, this is better. It did not fail. And then what's more, you can actually demo that to the business and be like, see, we did some work this sprint. 
look how different this is. Yeah, perfect. And maybe we can use the data which is collected by Honeycomb to replay this specific situation with Steadyback. I've always felt like chaos engineering and observability are, are kind of like peanut butter and jelly in much the same way that like if, if you don't have your shit together at a basic level, you probably shouldn't be injecting more chaos in the system. If you can't see what the fuck you're doing, you probably also have no business injecting chaos into your system. Yeah. Yeah. And here's a place where like aggregates are not good enough. You know, if all you have is monitoring, if all you have is these aggregate graphs that tells you you have some errors, but you can't actually see which requests are erroring and why and what they were timing out, you know, talking to, et cetera, then you're quite, always going to be kind of guessing what impact your chaos engineering experiment had on the service. And that to me is just a scary place to be in. I've heard of people who, you know, ran chaos engineering experiments in their system and then like two or three weeks later realized they had some, you know, lingering artifact of that experiment still causing chaos in their system. Like some some version of a build, you know, was out there in the wild that it wasn't where it was supposed to be and, and you know, returning bad requests and corrupting their data and shit. Yeah. You know, we're joking about this, but but I really do think that if you're going to be doing chaos engineering, you kind of owe it to yourself to have the kind of tooling where you can inspect it at the, you know, raw request level, where you can say these errors are outliers because of X, Y, Z, and you can trace it back to the, the experiment that you did. And a nice story from, from an early customer. He has started with chaos engineering. He has picked up SteadyBit. And he has told us, okay, our monitoring is based on open source stuff. Everything is in place. We are ready to go. So they have created the first experiment suite. They have executed 10 experiments. And after a week, he reached out to me again. Benjamin, we, we need to postpone our uh, steady bit engagement because our monitoring is not working. It took about five to 10 minutes before we can see any kind of errors. We are blind, but we were not able to see it in production. So they are quite happy to see it quite early before in production. So yeah, now they have picked up some paid versions. Mm, right. The latency between when something happens and when you're able to see it in your instrumentation is, is a real thing. It's a thing that we never think about because with Honeycomb, it's like, it's a matter of a couple of seconds. We get alerted if it's more than like 10 seconds. Yeah. It's instant. As soon as you've done the thing, you can query on the thing. And I keep forgetting that that's not true for most tools. If what you're using is like metrics and aggregates, in fact, there's a window of 15 seconds to a minute or whatever where it aggregates before it even sends it. I remember using fucking Datadog and it would be like five, six minutes before the metrics even showed up. And I was just like, I'm in the middle of doing shit here. I can't just like sit here and wait for five or six minutes after every single thing I type to see if it's fixed it. Yeah. And then you have the, you have the balancing act of, oh, okay, do we react quickly when these numbers drop off or do we wait because maybe it's just that they haven't arrived yet and you have a trade-off between reacting or waiting for your aggregates to start doing what they're supposed to do. I, right. Yeah. Have, have we fixed it or not? Like, are we going to make it worse or better? Like, we don't know. We're flying blind. Oh, the alarm went off. I logged in. It's fine now. Exactly. Absolutely. Once you've experienced real-time observability, like, it's really hard to go back. It's it, You just realize how blind you've been flying all along. Yeah. Yeah. Like you mentioned, so there's a time window from, from five minutes. How many customers are affected until you you can see it? So wow, okay, why I'm losing so many customers? Why is I talking so bad about me in, in in social media? Hmm, I don't know. Okay, now you should investigate. Right. How healthy do you consider the tech industry to be? That's a hard and tough question. It's sometimes quite hard. It depends on your organization. It depends on your culture and how you can work together. If you are in an organization where there's so much so much pressure because we need 
to get out as fast as possible with this new feature, but the team is telling you, ah, that's not stable. We are not able. We are not quite confident. Can we, can we postpone it a little bit? But, but the management is pushing you. That's not, it's a very unhealthy situation. If people are, are coming into, in, into the company and they, there's no time to, to get familiar with the tech stack, with the culture, with the tiny little details, how you can get your things up and running in production. That's not a nice place to be. Mm. There's a lot of pathologies, which is why I'm curious. Like, this is such a broad question. I'm, I'm like smiling at it because there are so many little microclimates in tech. Some of them, it's like, it's great. Like, you know, it's amazing. We get paid a lot of money. You know, there's some annoying shit now once in a while that, you know, it's more or less fine. We feel more or less empowered. There's some places where people are seriously miserable and burning out. And there's also like some sub questions here about like team versus people or like tech stack. And when you, when you came up with this question, like, what did you want us to ask before? Like, what, what are, what are you like, what are you driving towards? Yeah. Something behind this question for me is I'm allowed to fail. And how will my, my team react if I have maybe injected a failure because I have pushed something bad in production and now the system is not running? I'm allowed to fail. Is it, is it part of our culture as a team? Is it something we can learn from it, from it? Or is it something where I'm get fired because I have, done something wrong. So if you are able to fail, if you are allowed and you are covered by your team, by your organization, by your management, it's a nice place to be. And then we are healthy. It is interesting how, like, I think founders, this might be just pop psychology, like armchair psychologizing here. The fact that your, your mind goes immediately to like, can we fail, you know, in a safe way? If somebody asked me about healthy tech culture, I'd be like, well, is it transparent? And it, it's funny how it, like, it's sort of, emanates from our definition of what healthy culture looks like. And then we created companies out of, out of those things, right? Like it's like observability. Like, can you see what the fuck's going on? You know, do you have access to information? And for you, it seems to be very much about like, can you fail safely? Yeah. There's a pattern here. There's an inflection point between two different self-reinforcing feedback loops here. If you get a lot of pressure, then that leads through various ways to problems through the unfamiliarity, through the rush. So pressure leads to more problems, which leads to more pressure, which leads to more problems. Or else Mm -hmm. you can be in the reinforcing feedback loop of learning, like space and safety for learning leads to more success, which leads to more space and safety for learning. You're in one of the others. The middle is not stable. Yeah. Also something which is quite important for me at SteadyBit is that we can build a culture where, where people can learn from each other. If there's a failure, okay, we need to fix it, but it's, it's something we, we can have fun about. We are, as a team, can grow from it and not like like finger pointing, you have done something wrong. Ops has always had the best humor, I think, in terms of tech culture, just because of the gallows humor and the fact that we know, you know, stability is, is ephemeral and, and probably false and, and everything's failing all the time. And so if we can't laugh about it, where the hell are we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You will not survive if you're not able to laugh about, uh, laugh about it. Yeah, exactly. Something else I've been thinking about recently, though, and, and I wrote that, that long post about, you know, how to know if, if the company you're interviewing at is like a hellhole on the inside or not. Yeah, nice title. <laughs> it's just the fact that good intentions only take you so far. We live in this capitalist world. You know, it's very, you know, eat or be eaten, etc. Mm-hmm. Something I think that people don't pay enough attention to when they're looking for jobs is, is the business succeeding or not? Like on a fundamental level, do people want what they're selling? Like how are the business fundamentals? Are they growing? Because even if you have founders and, and a leadership team that has the best of intentions and really wants to do the best, you know, the right things, 
if things aren't going well, they're going to have some really tough decisions to make that are not going to make people happy. Mm. You know, back when Honeycomb was in this position back in 2017, and we had to do layoffs, and we ended up having to lay off pretty much most of the engineers who weren't straight white guys, which is what we had to do to survive because, you know, these were the senior people. These were the people we could only keep like, you know, nine people. And, and we we're just trying to get to the next position. I'm like exaggerating slightly. I felt terrible about that. And I can only imagine being on the other end of that and being like, well, she doesn't have these ideals. She doesn't live up to them, all this stuff. Conversely, like versus right now, like, I don't know if our listeners all know this, but we recently put an employee member on our board, like as a voting member of our board. We're able to do that because we're in a very different position now. We have a position of strengths with regard to our investors. You know, multiple people were trying to give us money. And when you're succeeding as a business, you really get to steer your own ship. You kind of get a blank check for any kind of radical social experiment, whether it's a libertarian social experiment, like Netflix has done, or whether it's kind of like socialist commie experience, like Honeycomb likes to do. If you're succeeding, then your investors, they don't want to mess with what's working. They're like, okay, you know what to do. It's working. We're going to like be hands off. You get to be masters of your own destiny, not completely, but in a much more meaningful way. If it's not working, like if business is not healthy and not growing, it's not in their hands. There are so many people who are going to have control over the destiny and many of which you'll never know their names or see their faces, right? Yeah. The capitalist system pushes you into that scarcity. Well, yeah, because it, it's literally live or die, right? And ideals are wonderful and we should have them. And there are some ideals which you should never sacrifice just to stay alive and stay safe. But there are some ideals which we live in a compromised world. We are compromised beings. There are some idealists who would say that this is false, but I believe that if you want to enact change, you have to work through imperfect organizations and imperfect vehicles. Yeah. Sometimes you have to settle for chaos engineering in a test environment. There you go. But you need to stay authentic. You need to stay transparent to your organization, to your peoples. Yeah. I think that's the best you can really aim for is always being honest. Yeah. yeah. Hey, this isn't who we want to be, but this is who we have to be today. And just apologizing to people instead of like acting like you're not. Exactly. There needs a place to be where, where people can understand how you have picked up this way and not the other. Yeah, that's true. Exactly. And in my experience, people are remarkably understanding. If you're honest with them and upfront, And honestly, they shouldn't be because that's an extremely low bar. But most people are not accustomed to getting honesty from their leaders. And so they're generally pretty understanding when, when you're just forthright with them. Hard way to, to stay in balance. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Speaking of balance, there is this balance between safety and reducing tech debt and keeping your system super reliable and spending time fixing all of the possible things that you can figure out could possibly go wrong. Versus delivering features that you can sell. How do you find that? Developers are, are measured on speed. They would like to, to get new features fast and up and running. They would like to get a new library up and running because maybe I can, I can be faster. I'm, I'm optimizing my, my outcome, my speed. But on the other side, at my local environment, everything is running like, like it should be. But now in the distributed system, everything is now getting into, into one big system and components are coming together the first time. Wow. Okay. How we should care about uh, reliability and how we should be aware of cascading errors. That's, that's something where we need to get in balance. So not every feature needs to get in production as fast as possible. Maybe it's also a good time to improve the system on, on reliability. I think of it like, I don't know if you ever watched 
like car racing where they're going around and around and around the track, but they have to stop every few things, like switch out their tires and they and to like do the maintenance or they're, or they're just going to explode, right? Like, yeah, in, in terms of software, like speed is safety. The more quickly you can be shifting, shipping like smaller changes, that's what gives you a rhythm. It, it keeps you safe. The faster you can go, the, the better it is. Yeah, like what if you could just drive through the pit every lap, but instead of taking your tires off, they just like sprayed some extra rubber on. <laughs> yes. Nice picture. Nice picture. Yeah. Yeah. You have to stop and refactor every now and then. You have to like make, make investments in your infrastructure in order to be able to keep going fast. Or maybe like like the technical depths. Okay, they are still there. Yeah. We can fix them later. We can fix them later. The list is growing and growing and growing, but nobody cares. One thing I love about Honeycomb is that as a developer, I suddenly have a way of noticing when I have delivered value, of proving to myself by looking at the data of how many people are using this thing and what's more, exactly who is using this thing. Individual customers, I can find the people who are actually getting value from what I do. And that turns out to be so much more meaningful than beautiful code. Yeah. Yes. You need to to identify with your customers. You need to understand your customers, their problems, because they are telling you, okay, that's a problem. Please fix it for me. But but I'm not an expert. You you can fix it. Yeah, but they they never tell you that in person, mostly because your organization won't let you talk to the customer support people. But observability can. Your system can tell you. The software notices, oh well, <laughs> have this request that's five seconds old. Yeah. This is a beautiful thing about observability is that it really aligns engineers with their users. You know, it's not just about how is the system performing in general. It's about what is the experience of every single individual user. Yeah. You can put yourself in their shoes and you can and you can retrace it. You can see what they're seeing. And, and it has a way of aligning you with, you know, them and seeing their pain and, and identifying with it in a way that I think has been very abstract to us in the past. Yeah. And seeing their pain... And noticing that it's because the inventory service went down. And then you can say, look, fixing this connection between checkout and inventory is real value that we can provide to customers. And when you have something like SteadyBit, you don't just write one test that makes inventory service go down. Because that just gets you the one thing. That doesn't work in distributed systems where... That's not going to be the problem tomorrow. That's not going to be. It's going to be something else. You need to be able to set up those experiments for a whole category of of problems. And also, you need to find a way how you could share this specific part or maybe this specific experiment with with other organizations, with other teammates, with, with other people that are also sitting in front of a very distributed system Still, every every system is a tiny snowflake, and every system is is reacting under uh, under conditions a little bit different. Yeah, but there are some parts where 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 people can work together and share their experience. Like, okay, if you are doing co- Kubernetes with this configuration, it's not a good way. Here's an experiment; you can verify how your Kubernetes is reacting. Oh, nice! Not try to figure out if you have this particular setting anywhere in your sixty deployed applications, but run this experiment and see if this is a problem for you. Exactly. Right. I was going to say that, you know, it's always so hard to figure out like when to like stop and switch the wheels, like when just to pause from shipping features and do the refactor or whether to do it like along the way, right? Making everything else take twice as long, but then you, you amortize it over a longer period of time. And, and something that I become very attuned to is what is our horizon? Like how far out are we planning? Because like for the first couple of years of the company, 
our horizon was, you know, somewhere between a month and six months. We knew how long until we had to raise money again. You know, there are times when, you know, it's like, okay, if this can't pay off in the next three months, we, we can't do it. Like we can't spend any time doing it because we'll be dead in three months if we, you know, so everything had to like have a turnaround. If we could have, have this payoff within a week, great, let's do it. But, but like we were able to spend no time investing in our, in our long-term viability. And then after we'd raise money, we'd be like, okay, now we're planning for the next 18 months or the next year or whatever. Knowing the horizon on which you're expected to make your system succeed is a really big ingredient into telling, you know, how you should be spending your time. Yeah, very good. How does your product organization work? Do you have a product manager? Honeycomb didn't have a product manager for the first like four years. Oh, that's, that's, that's a very nice topic. So we only can win on product. So the product needs to be loved by our customers. From day one, the biggest challenge. So we have, we have a dedicated product team. And this means, okay, there's a product manager. He's, he's the expert for problems. He's, he's like searching for problems the whole day and he's picking up like interviews from customers. Okay. Ah, there is something we, we can work on it. And then we have a UX designer and she needs to understand, okay, that's the problem identified by our product manager, how we can solve it. I will talk to the engineering team. And it's, it's so important that the engineering team and designer team is working so closely together. Because if you are building something upfront in your, in your product team, maybe in just uh, two or three heads, and you are then jumping over the, over the wall to the engineering team, please build this. No, that's not working because engineers are fighting against the solution because they would like to be part of this process. They would like to be jumped into calls and into interviews. They would like to understand how, how the customer. How large is your company, by the way, Benjamin? Actually, we are in total since uh, yesterday, 12 people, 12. 12 people. How many engineers? How many product people? Two product people and six engineers. Any designers? One. Mm -hmm. We practice what's called, I guess, the triad model here at Honeycomb, where you've got a product manager and engineer and design who are all like, they do the product planning process together. Is, is that what you guys practice too? If I'm talking about a product team, it's there are multiple roles involved. They're doing research. We are also doing some, some guessing, like we have some ideas we would like to get out in, in, into the hands of customers to then do an interview afterwards to get feedback immediately. That's the way we actually working at this moment. How do you decide what work gets done? It's done by, okay, there's a core vision we would like to work on. That's the core vision of SteadyBit. And there are some, some goals and the goals are picked up in the founder team. They are challenged against our engineering team against our core team and then we will find a way how we can achieve these goals and we are doing it for let's say in the next three months in the next six months we would like to achieve this four goals and how we can do it and every goal needs to be measured at any point in time it's not like after two months we will take and analyze are we still on the right track no every goal needs to be measured at any point in time and the solution it's up by the team so they they need to understand the problems. They need to understand the goals and the vision behind. And then they can challenge every solution idea against these goals. Is it paying in or is it something hmm, maybe for later? We will take it on, on, on the desk. What do you see as being the biggest challenge of the next two years for your company? The biggest challenge is happy customers and to, to get more customers into the product, but without being not able to, to deliver. For example, if you're doubling the team, 
there's so much going on inside of your organization. You, you need to take care about your, your organization that they are still able to work, that they are still able to deliver and they are still able to. I mean, like from a product perspective, like what, what is the biggest thing you're trying to build or, or accomplish? In the next months, we will open the product. So actual at this point in time, we are working with design partners and now we are opening the, opening the product more and more. We started the early access program yesterday, so people can get started with Stadibit without to do any sales port. That's exciting. Yeah, because I'm a developer by heart, and something I don't really like is to talk to sales people before I can try out the product. No, please, come on. Totally. I would like to get my hands into the product. I would like to get started as fast as possible. And if I'm loving your product, I will contact you anyway. But give me something. And that's something we are preparing for the next month that people can get started with Stadibit as easy as possible. Cool. Congratulations. It's been really nice having you. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for having me. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed and hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollicast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.